0: To the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at FeministCoffeeHour.com, on Twitter at FemCoffeePod, or you can send us an email to FeministCoffeeHour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have two very special guests. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, yeah, I'm Rebecca Lynch. Originally, I'm Elizabeth Woods in uh, Queens, New York, but I've been living in Wisconsin for the last few years, and I lead the Wisconsin Working Families Party. And Amanda?
2: Hi, I'm Amanda Marcotte. I'm a senior politics uh, writer for Salon.com. Welcome back to the podcast.
0: We've had both these guests with us before. We're happy to talk to them today. And a quick note uh, before we get into our topic, we're recording this on November 24th. So we know that the impeachment hearings are ongoing, but they change every single day. So it's not a great thing for us to talk about because anything we say now is going to be completely useless by tomorrow or the next day. So today's topic is the uh, presidential primaries. We wanted to get a, an episode in before people start voting, which is going to be sooner than you know it. I guess my first question is, and I guess we'll, we'll start with Amanda, there was a debate this week. Are there too many people in the debates? Should the, the DNC be doing something to change uh, the requirements?
2: Um, yes, there are obviously too many people in the debates. On the second one, I don't know. I think one of the problems is this was sort of an overcorrection from last primary season where supporters of Bernie Sanders complained that there weren't enough debates, that it wasn't fair enough, that it was too hard to get into the debates, all this stuff. And so the DNC almost had an excess of fairness. And now we have all these joke candidates on stage like Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang. But it's already been clear that if they changed the rules midstream and actually tightened up the debate Uh, criteria more than they had intended to that these candidates would start screaming bloody murder and then it might actually make the situation worse, even though they don't have a chance in
1: hell.
3: I think it's funny that you mention two of the candidates as joke candidates, (laughs) but um, I feel like there might be more than two joke candidates, I think. Yes. (laughs) I think uh, Steyer, for sure, should also go on that list but otherwise fully agree. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, those were just two of many joke candidates. I just
2: didn't want to list them all.
3: Even the list of joke candidates is too long.
2: Yeah. Rebecca, you think
1: anybody should drop out like today? I don't necessarily think that folks should drop out. I think that, what has been interesting to see is the way in which certain candidates who maybe, I don't know if I I would call them joke candidates per se, but candidates who are very unlikely to secure the nomination have nevertheless been able to get oxygen in this race. And there are like lots of different, really interesting reasons for that. So, you know, I certainly agree that there are too many candidates on the debate stage for a substantive conversation. And yet, I would have loved to have seen Julian Castro on stage at the last debate. I thought his voice is really missing. And instead we saw, as you already mentioned, Tom Steyer, who essentially has been able to buy his way onto the debate stage. And then we see, you know, in other ways how white candidates have raised more money than candidates of color. Certainly uh, candidates who are spending their own money or or getting huge donations have been able to get more oxygen and play in the early primary state. So, it's really interesting. So I I would never say that someone should drop out. I think like crowded primaries are a beautiful part of democracy, but I would like to see an electorate and and a media, quite frankly, that is elevating the voices of candidates that are serious and credible candidates in a way that helps us like get at the issues and have really substantive and interesting debate. Are there issues that you feel are distracting in the debates? I don't know that there are issues that are distracting. That's a really good question. There are so many issues to talk about. There are so many candidates on the stage that it's hard to give any of these issues their due. You think about the last debate in terms of foreign policy, no one mentioned what's happening in Bolivia, but how could you? There was hardly enough time, and yet, like that's something a lot of folks would have liked to see. We talk about healthcare, we don't really get to dig into healthcare and the differences between the candidates. It is really interesting how that's become a bit of a flashpoint in terms of how you could pay for that. But there's so much more that could be said. So I don't know that there's there's any issues that should be off the agenda. I don't know if if you, Amanda, or either of you think any differently. I disagree pretty strongly. I think we have
2: talked more than enough about healthcare during the debates. I am exhausted of discussing healthcare care and the exaggerating the differences between the candidates. You know, I obviously think certain candidates are better than others on this issue. But I think that spending 45 minutes every debate, debating the intricacies of funding and also minor policy differences, when not a single one of these policies is going to pass through Congress, is extremely frustrating to me. The last debate was the best debate because they spent the least amount of time on healthcare. I'm sick of healthcare. Like, got it. Everyone wants universal healthcare. There's different paths to getting to it. None of them are going to pass because the president doesn't actually write legislation. Can we please move on? I wish we could ask questions about things like what are your priorities going into office? Those are actually useful questions that would actually help the voters make better decisions. And the reason that the moderators ask about health care is because they feel like harping on these extremely small differences between policies um, makes for good television. And I don't know where they get that, because I really just want to like kill myself watching it, <laughs> which is bad
3: for my health. So I'm curious, because I think some of the differences are minor, but some of the differences are bigger, depending on the candidates. So I'm curious which ones you think are uh, fall in, in which bucket for health care. The debate has actually exaggerated the extent
2: to which there are differences. I mean, the difference between Joe Biden's public option and Medicare for all is actually less significant than the media is making it out to be. Again, I prefer Medicare for all. I think we all do probably here, but if there was even a possibility of a public option being passed, we should all celebrate that. That's a pretty good one. (laughs) I think that the funding issue is complete nonsense, barking nonsense. Like there's nobody actually knows how it's going to get funded. So I would like to see less debate about the differences between how we're going to get universal care and A lot less debate about how you're going to fund it, because I think in both cases, it's in the end going to be irrelevant, which the president doesn't pass legislation. (laughs) But the president can set priorities. And again, I think that would be a lot more interesting, because I think, you know, for instance, if you asked, what are your priorities, I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who are very alike, and most of their answers might actually give you very different answers on that.
0: Rebecca, was there any Besides Bolivia, was there any other questions you would have liked to have heard from the debate stage?
1: What would be really interesting would be to have a substantive debate around the many issues that are the prerogative of the president, whether in their uh, capacity as um someone who can, like, lead the charge from the bully pulpit or enact, like, a whole series of change from executive orders or or their appointments as it relates to racial justice. And I think there's, like, obviously a myriad of issues in which uh, racial justice and that kind of platform intersects. But I think that's, like, a really interesting conversation to have. A number of candidates have come out, you know, in some way or another in support of some type of reparations. Obviously, the conversation around racial justice as it relates to policing in this country is ongoing, uh, something that's already come up during this campaign with, you know, various candidates, including Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And I think that would be fascinating. And I think it would be fascinating because, like, so many of the issues that we talk about, whether it's, you know, a wealth gap or income gap, or if it's access to government services or even education, have that component. And so, like, I I would love to see, like, more of, like, an explicit conversation around that. I think that'd be really interesting. I think that's like in the dare to dream category. I can't imagine that we would really have it, but that I think is something that, that's definitely missing and would be just fascinating. And and again, it's, it's every topic, right? I mean, you look at the climate crisis and how the climate crisis impacts environmental justice or environmental injustice, particularly with poor communities and communities of color. You look at you know, really, just every issue. So that that's what I really love to see. Um, but I also do think that, you know, I, I mentioned Bolivia. I kind of threw it out there earlier. But, Foreign policy is a very important facet of the job of the president of the United States. And, in fact, we have a number of members of the U.S. Senate who are currently on that debate stage and running for president and, therefore, have their own very important role as it pertains to foreign policy. And it would be really interesting and, I think, really important, given what's happening right now with the impeachment proceedings, given what's happening all throughout the world, that we really test these candidates and quiz them Uh, as to where they stand on, uh, you know, a whole host of of foreign policy issues. One of the
3: things that particularly frustrated me about this past debate was that it was recorded um, and conducted on Trans Day of Remembrance. And one of the moderators is a member of the LGBT community, (laughs) and it wasn't mentioned at all. I'm not fully informed on all of the campaigning that all of the candidates have done. I know Elizabeth Warren has done a lot of tweeting, at least her campaign has done some tweeting about the murders of trans women of color and how disproportionate they are for their percentage of the population, which implies that they're specifically targeted for violence, which also tracks with what we know. So I was just really disappointed in that. especially considering the current administration and the court packing that they're doing and the protections that they're removing, particularly without federal protection for trans people in the workplace.
0: Yeah, I mean, CNN made a whole thing about having the anthem. I mean, they, they could have done a moment of silence. I mean, you don't even have to plan for that. You don't have to book a band or anything. <laughs>
3: Right. Also, none of the candidates brought it up, which was disappointing. Right. right. And
2: it's something that um, the president actually, the executive branch has a lot of power to influence. I mean, I know that under Barack Obama, the State Department, Hillary Clinton just went in and single-handedly changed the way that they do passports so mm-hmm. that people didn't have to go through so many as hoops to change their gender on their passports, which was a huge thing for a lot of people. And it just was very quietly done. Not a big, like deal was made out of it, but it changed a lot of people's lives like that. I think that's
0: something interesting that that you bring up, Amanda, and kind of what you were talking about before, Rebecca, about different candidates taking different strategies. Like, I know they've asked Bernie Sanders, like, how are you going to get your bills passed? And he said, I'm going to have rallies in Kentucky to get you know, people that pressure Mitch McConnell. I guess I'll ask Amanda first, and then then Rebecca. Do you see any big differences in the way the candidates talk about their strategies once they become president? This is kind of like a combination of of like policy and priorities. Like, because I don't think this is talked about enough. Maybe that's my question. Like, what are your your key strategies? Like, how do you see like the principles you're going to use to lead?
2: Well, I would say what's funny about that is Sanders actually has a fairly traditional strategy vis-a-vis like how Democrats usually act when they get into power, which is like they move to pass a bunch of like social like safety net bills that they've been desiring for a long time and they work from that point of view, right? That would definitely be what he does. And I think Elizabeth Warren has made a different theory of the case, which is that the reason that stuff doesn't get passed is because of the corruption in D.C. So actually we tackle corruption first and then all these other things. can That's the thing that the dam that's holding back the river. Right. So that's her theory of the case now. And that's why I think it'd be interesting to have that question asked, because I think both of them are asking for something that's really, really big and probably not possible in this current circumstances but i do think that she's probably more right that if you could get the lobbyists and corporate money out of dc that would have more of a long-term impact than trying to rally voters uh to get mitch mcconnell to sign off on a medicare for all which he's never ever going to do you know what i mean
1: yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting things to consider when we look at the f- the democratic field. And it's the differing theories of change that we have among the candidates. And I think, you know, on a basic level from the more centrist candidates, be it Biden or Buttigieg, even Klobuchar, right, I think there's this idea that the way to get things done Is to you know, in the case of Klobuchar, be I think what she might consider fiscally responsible, um, whatever that might mean, right? But like this idea of like you know we've got to just like tailor our wish list, if you will, to what is like currently quote unquote affordable. I think you know in different ways, Buttigieg and Biden might you know appeal to this idea of like our theory of change, the way to get things done, is either to reach across the aisle, or if not quite that, then to to be a little bit more centrist or a little bit less economically left in our demands. And so that's one theory and way of doing things and I think is certainly in line with the uh, governance strategy of President Obama. And, of course, he spoke up in the last couple of weeks to reiterate that. I think what to me is really interesting is the theory of change is not the same for senators sanders and warren and certainly you know what amanda mentioned is a key component of that you know we, you had mentioned amanda you know i wish that these debates really focus on folks priorities and at least in the case of these two candidates they've been pretty clear about their priorities, or at least like the order of them, right? And and you mentioned Warren very clearly wants to start out with combating corruption, and certainly a focal point of her campaign is also this wealth tax. Um, Sanders is continuing to talk very clearly about healthcare, obviously about other core left things, um, whether they're foreign or domestic. But the differences between these two candidates in terms of their theories of change actually go beyond that in a way that's so fascinating. You know, you've got Senator Sanders, um, who's built this organization, Our Revolution, who believes in kind of building this grassroots movement to push his platform, and specifically, you know, um, at democratic socialism, really um, remaking the system in that way. And that is kind of his theory of change, that I'm going to have all these grassroots, all these people with me pushing along. And and Warren is not exactly different. But what is a slight difference is that, in addition to doing that, and I want to talk more about her, her approach to that in a second, she's also kind of like a wonk in chief. And I think we see that you know, most clearly delineated in how both of these two candidates roll out their policy platform. So Senator Sanders um, really speaks to core values, you know, and is super strong. This is what I believe. This is why I believe it. And stakes out his positions in a way that really speaks to people's values and really kind of gets you in the gut. Senator Warren doesn't differ from Senator Sanders on the issues really all that much. But differs in how she lays them out, and in particular, has these incredibly detailed plans for which, of course, she's gotten famous for, if you will, but really speak to how she, as president, can affect certain things. And you know, paragraphs among paragraphs of, of the, the minutiae of the details, and why that's so fascinating, as in terms of this question, is like that is really her theory of change, right? That you can be on the inside in government as a policy person pushing change, whether it's, you know, her history of creating the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau or, you know, fighting to change the bankruptcy laws or her invoking, you know, folks from the past, like Frances Perkins, the podium for Elizabeth Warren's big speech in Washington Square Park in New York was made from boards from Frances Perkins' farmhouse, I think. And, you know, her role with FDR and and the New Deal and really playing this role that I think Warren really wants to draw a parallel to. The one quick thing I would add to this, though, is that Warren does see the need for popular support, not just, of course, in getting elected, but afterwards. Uh, And specifically, and interestingly, she's invoking this in this, like, series of speeches, so there's a great piece out this week in The Intercept by Ryan Grimm that talks about this arc of three speeches that Senator Warren's given. The first was their kickoff speech in Lawrence, Massachusetts, the location of the Bread and Roses strike of women garment workers. Then the second speech was the one I just referenced in Washington Square Park invoking the women of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and the work done afterwards by a mass movement of women, you know, immigrant workers, mostly in the garment industry, and, of course, also Frances Perkins, who I mentioned, to change the labor laws, to change protections for workers. And then the third was this past week in Atlanta where, in addition to doing the Dem debate, Senator Warren gave this huge speech specifically um, to Black women and talking in particular about the washerwomen, the laundry worker strike of Atlanta following the Civil War. And so, in each of these three speeches, she's invoking women, women workers. Uh, women of color, um, in particular, immigrant women, and the movements that they were a part of, that they created, and how they pushed change. Anyway, that was, not to filibuster this conversation, but I think it's super interesting to to look at the differences between these candidates in, in terms of their theory of change, and not only how they're going to get elected, but after being elected.
3: Yeah, I think it's really cool how we can really talk for such a long time uh, about like the differences between Warren and Sanders, because I think that there's a lot of overlap between support for the two of them in general, except for kind of really kind of like factions that are very compatible on the internet. I think generally in terms of voter base, there's a lot of overlap in their support. And so it is really useful for me to, to think about their differences in terms of priorities and coalition building and movement building. And so I think that was like a really excellent discussion. I'm happy about it.
0: (laughs) What I wanted to ask is, I know this isn't either of your jobs, like Amanda, you're a columnist for Salon, and Rebecca, you work for a different party, technically, or the Working Families Party. But I've had this conversation now like three times in the past few months with different people. One is a supporter of Sanders, and one is a supporter of Warren, and both of them consider themselves Uh, politically independent and they both live in states with closed primaries and they both said to me I don't know Elizabeth I have to register as a democrat why why would I do that and then a third conversation came up Rebecca and I have been talking about trying to find a woman to run for New York City Council and there's a woman that I know in my community who's like a, a leader and I asked her and I was like you know and she's like I you know I'm an independent I don't know how that would work and I was like well just just run as a democrat and she's like I don't know so you were just hanging out with people over coffee or a drink or something and someone said that do you have a good uh, elevator pitch for the democratic primary because i honestly i wasn't sure what to say because they're coming at it probably from the left of where the democrats currently are
2: what i always tell people is i grew up in texas i lived in texas till i was 32 you don't get to register to in a party there it's a privilege and an honor to be able to register in a party because you have a say in the direction of that party and Watching people take a privilege that I didn't get to enjoy until I moved to New York and just throw it away irritates me. I don't care what party you register in, but pick one, register in it, and vote in its primary. I think the problem is people are under the impression that parties are something other than what they are, but parties are made of the people that are in them. And if you don't vote in a party, if you don't register for a party, if you don't support your party, like... You are actually allowing the thing to happen that you don't want to happen, which is somebody else runs it.
3: I think that is kind of a debatable point for some people, though, particularly with the Democratic Party machine. I think that there are definitely a lot of people who absolutely do not see it that way um, and who see it as kind of, I'm not eloquent about this, but like kind of almost an analogy might be like it's almost too big to fail as a party that we can't have more diverse voices within the party or dissension within the party because of money issues with a party that large to have influence the numbers that you would need require a lot of investment and so I'm curious to hear how you would respond to something like that. I I mean, I think it's fine to be in, like, the Working Families Party,
2: obviously, and they they do strategizing on the local and state level that's effective, not denying that. But, I mean, in terms of, like, why I'm a registered Democrat, I would say, like, that argument sounds kind of lazy to me, (laughs) you know? Well, it sounds like a lot of work to fight for your party, you know? (laughs)
0: I mean, that, that's and, what I said. I said, if you want Bernie to win or if you want Elizabeth Warren to win, then register and vote, and that's how you can help make that happen.
2: It's a privilege that I think a lot of people overlook. I remember when Obama and Clinton were running against each other, in Texas like was actually a relevant state in the primary because it was a contentious primary. We were thrilled in Texas because it was probably the first time ever in my life that my vote on a presidential race counted for anything. And I mean, I think it's very easy to like turn your nose up to that. I think it's a little harder to be earnest and be like, you know what, I'm going to do what I can.
1: I agree with a lot of what was said. I mean, to take a step back for a second, it is completely understandable uh, how folks could be really disillusioned and frustrated with our two party system and you know if you're on on the left if you will with the democratic party infrastructure whether it's on the local level i think karen mentioned these party machines or the national level it's deeply frustrating and this is very unlike many Democratic countries across the world, right? In in most Democratic nations, you have multiple political parties. You have the parliaments or their version of the House or Senate have to cobble together majorities from these different parties. What we have is fairly unique, and there are these two large, hulking parties that can feel really stifling and frustrating. And I think there are so many incredibly important differences between the Republican and Democratic Party. And there are also some things that are like Really similar. There's a lot of agreement on things as it relates to our economic system or as it relates to, you know, American empire. You know, certainly big money donors have tremendous influence in our government as a whole, let alone in these Democratic parties. And it's like, no wonder people feel frustrated. I feel like really excited and committed to building the Working Families Party and like appreciate the shout outs from you all, I think, there's a lot of important work to be done, and and the party is certainly growing. But something that you know we're very clear about, and our executive director, Maurice Mitchell, is constantly saying is that we are not delusional about building power. We cannot afford to be delusional about building power. We're trying to affect serious change. People's lives are on the line, their livelihoods are on the line, and like we need to be very clear-eyed about that. And so one of the ways in which that shows up. I'll just speak first from the organizational level, from the political party level, and then I'll speak to what you mentioned, Elizabeth, about people as individuals. But for the Working Families Party, we're different in every state. And as Amanda mentioned, you know, in Texas, you don't register as a party. In New York, you do. One of the quirky things about this country is that in every different state, there are very different laws and, and rules as they relate to political parties, as they relate to registering to vote in general, as they relate to voting in primaries. You might be caucusing. You might be Voting in a primary, it's like, really, it's different everywhere. It's fascinating, right? And in this patchwork of different roles, there needs to be a different approach if we're going to be effective in in building power. So one example, I lead the Working Families Party in Wisconsin. I'm originally from New York. In New York, the Working Families Party is on the ballot. It is a political party on the ballot. Because in New York, at least for the time being, there's something called fusion voting, where if Karen were running for office, Karen could run on both the Working Families Party line and the Democratic Party line. And if you don't have that, like in Wisconsin, you run the risk of having someone be what's called a spoiler, where maybe you're running on the WFP line, the green line, whatever. But if you can't have that fusion, in some races, that's great. But in some races, maybe you're taking some left votes away in a very competitive race that's a purplish district, and maybe the Republican wins, right? And so I think, like, we as a political party have been really savvy and, like, Deliberate about where we seek political party status in which states, vis-a-vis the rules that are there. And so, to bring it back down to the individual level, you mentioned Elizabeth. Let's you're an and you're an independent or you are a leftist, right? You don't have to consider yourself a Democrat and a diehard member of the Democratic Party. But if you are not registered as a Democrat, then what you are not going to be able to do is to vote in competitive democratic primaries and in much of the state that's the whole ball game and so you're cutting yourself out from from being able to be involved at all and so you mentioned someone possibly running for city council in New York City in 51 districts and all but a few if you're not running the democratic party you're not winning that's it like there's no question about it so i think it's important to definitely understand the limitations of our two-party structure and the frustrations and really like honor that and people should be able to feel true to that and at the same time you know, we can't afford to be delusional about how we can have an impact here, either on the individual or the organizational level.
2: I was just going to say, I remember to that how many people in New York I saw who were so mad they couldn't vote in the primary in 2016. And I just laughed at them. I was like, oh, all those times you were like, I'm not a Democrat. I'm too cool to register
3: with the party. I'm like, well, you made (laughs) your bed. Now you're sleeping in it, you know? So now that we've like fully dunked on all of the non-registered people and your friend Elizabeth, who you want to run, who I'm sure is really encouraged by our dunking on them. I don't think she listens to the podcast. That's okay. <laughs> Good. I, uh, I
1: would say actually quickly before you pivot, Karen, that I'm de I'm almost not dunking on folks. I think that like I am. there are, are <laughs> Our political system, (laughs) certainly in our general elections, but also within party politics is like deliberately murky and the vast majority of people do not understand how this works. And that is something that like adheres to the benefit of people already in power. And so they just like perpetuate that like lack of clarity. And so I think it's like, it's super confusing. I had a lot of folks growing up who were like, in New York, you can be not registered in any party, as you mentioned. And I think people thought that was fine, and and it was never explained to them, not in a civics class, not in a newspaper, not in in popular discourse, why that was putting them at a disadvantage. And so I think that's that's a challenge that we have, at least in the Working Families Party or wherever, when we're trying to build power and build change, that we have to start by civics and just explaining this very unclear system to folks, state by state and county by county.
0: That was me when I turned 18. I was like, I'm not registering in a party. And then- I turned 18 actually like a month after the 2000 presidential election. So then 2004 came around and I was like, oh yeah, I do want to vote in the primary. Okay. And then I just, you know, did it. But uh, Karen, I think you had a a question.
3: I mean, so I have a few, but I'm also just kind of reflecting on the different rhetorical styles of a columnist versus uh, an organizer. (laughs) organizer. I like it. (laughs) And I'm really happy that we're getting both of those represented here.
0: (laughs) And just a sidebar, we have ranked choice voting in New York City now, so someone might not be a spoiler, but only in city elections. So,
3: Yeah, congrats on that. That's pretty cool. Considering that the title of this podcast is Feminist Coffee Hour, I did want to ask, what, if any, gendered issues may you have noticed uh, while watching the debates or in the rhetoric or coverage of the candidates? I feel like it's gotten a lot better. I mean,
2: I know a lot of people were skeptical of this, but it does seem like Hillary Clinton's run, did a lot of good in terms of, like, letting us have the fights that now has caused some of the media to be a little bit better about covering our female candidates than they were last time around. (laughs) I also think the 2018 midterms helped a lot, all these women running. So that's good. Unfortunately, I still think that there's a lot of trauma over Clinton's loss in 2016 that's causing people to overrate, like, the danger of running a female candidate. Like, I looked at 2018, and I saw a lot of women win. I think women actually outperformed men in that election. Female candidates outperformed men relative to, like, their district, right? I think that Hillary Clinton got nearly 3 million more votes than Donald Trump, (laughs) and people tend to overlook that. I I really hope that there are not people out there that like elizabeth warren or like kamala harris or like one of the female candidates and wants to vote for them but is hesitant because they think a woman can't win because i don't think that that's appropriate that's what i would like to say on that
1: yeah that's an interesting point i mean you're you're 100 right there is a lot of trauma related to that and i mean just like on an anecdotal level you know my organizing here in wisconsin there are certainly people who like the women candidates running for president, but are very nervous about whether or not, you know, quote unquote, a woman could beat Trump. And I think it's understandable, right? I think that if President Obama had not won in 2008, um, and had narrowly lost, I imagine that people would have said, see, like a person of color can't win in this day and age quite yet, right? And I think that They're not to equate at all race and gender, but just to say, you know, generally that we haven't had a woman president. And other than President Obama, we have not had a non-white male president uh, in the history of this nation. And certainly, you know, these overlapping issues of patriarchal or white supremacist culture show up. In these elections, they show up in our lives, they show up in every relationship that we have with another human being. And that's just something that we constantly have to investigate and work on. It's not that there won't be people who won't vote for a woman because she's a woman. There will be people like that. But to Amanda's point, Hillary Clinton did phenomenally well. I'll make the additional point that there were lots of additional reasons why she did not secure the Electoral College vote, some of them might have been related to her policies. Some of them might have been related to the media coverage, you know, around quote-unquote corruption. Certainly there was Russian interference. We know that, right? So mm-hmm. I think I, I agree. It was like an, it's an unfounded, it's not an unfounded fear. I'm sympathetic to the fear. And I think, unfortunately, Amanda, people do feel that on the grassroots level. But what I'm optimistic about is that we have a whole lot of time to show them that isn't the case. And I think as a democratic field Windows down and we see, you know, one or two women candidates kind of rise to the top and continue to raise money. Um, and, you know, these polls, all these polls that come out are not just polls about, you know, who, how these candidates are doing vis-a-vis each other in the Democratic primary, but they always have matchups with Trump. And what we're seeing is that the all the candidates are doing pretty well vis-a-vis, yeah. vis-a-vis Trump, sometimes within the margin of error, depending on the state. But I think that, like, Word of that will start to get out there, but it's certainly a hurdle that candidates are going to have to overcome. As a follow-up, Rebecca, you mentioned
3: a lot of the other things that interfered with Clinton's election and beyond the interference, uh, beyond policy, there's also voter suppression, which I think we've seen exacerbated since then. And I'm curious kind of the ways that all of these things might play into the primary, which is what we're talking about now.
1: <laughs> I, think, I think voter suppression is a real issue. It's it's gonna be an issue in November of 2020. It's been an issue in the midterms um, in local elections. I'm sure it'll show up in the primary. I think to me, like what's interesting about the question of voter suppression is like not exclusively, but how like specifically it is racialized. And, you know, that kind of leads me to answering like a different question, but one that I think is also interesting, which is this debate that's been playing out over the last week or so, you know, really sparked by Julian Castro, who's a candidate for president, about the order of primary states we have and how that dictates the outcome and how that relates to race. And specifically, Julian Castro said, you know, we've got Iowa, New Hampshire first, two of the whitest states in the country. And we are a Democratic Party that says that we want to be inclusive of everybody. Several candidates say, including him and and Senator Harris, oh, we need the quote-unquote Obama coalition in order to win in November 2020. And yet we're starting out with these two states and so much of the momentum or lack thereof of primary candidates are going to be dictated by how they do in these very white states. So, like, I, I don't know, it's not really an answer to your question, it's a total tangent, but I think... What is an interesting conversation and and one that needs to be had is how voters of color are being able to vote in primaries or in general vis-a-vis voter suppression, um, and also how they're going to factor in to the contest to secure delegates in the lead-up to the DNC.
2: It's an interesting question, because obviously 100 percent of voter suppression that we're seeing is coming from Republicans that are trying to eliminate Democratic voters from voting in general elections, right? But they are targeting them by on demographic points, both because they are racist and because people of color vote for Democrats more. However, if you lose your voter registration, if you lose your voting rights because of a targeted campaign against people of color that was meant around a general election, obviously, you're going to also lose your voting rights for the primary. So I could see it having some effect on the primary, but it's it's hard to imagine how much it would because of as you noted, like different districts have really big different demographic tilts like when like African American voters are targeted for voter suppression it knocks a percentage of them out, but it doesn't knock the majority of them out and there that's just the eyeball is towards, just getting it on the margins for statewide and citywide and whatnot elections from the Republican point of view. So I don't know that it's going to make a big difference in a Democratic party. And I would say to people, however, that this is all the more reason to vote in a primary, because if you have lost your voter registration, that is a chance you will find out if you show up and and you are not registered to vote in the primary. And you can challenge that.
0: Both of you brought up um, people reliving or having some issues still from from 2016 and unfortunately i do still see people arguing about the 2016 primary and it's the worst thing on the internet i think um and i but i also think a lot of the people who are arguing still about the 2016 primary are bots like if you look at the accounts there something's wrong and it just seems like people trying to sow discord and stuff like that It's hard for me because I've been like, quote unquote, extremely online now for about 15 years. So to me, you know, your Spidey sense starts tingling and you're like, you know, something's wrong. But for like the average person who doesn't spend so many hours a day on on Twitter, is there a good way to tell when something's a little bit off when someone's a a paid troll or or a Russian bot or
2: or something like that? My opinion is since you don't know, don't argue with people on the Internet. It doesn't help anything. It doesn't change anything. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody, but just don't. I mean, if you're curious if somebody's a bot, because I block bots so that they can't draft off of my traffic, right? If they sound like they're bot-like, I block them anyway because who wants to deal with a person that sounds like a bot? (laughs) But, you know, click them if they don't have a lot of followers, if their account started at a funny time, if it's like festooned with a bunch of flags and they're like, I am American. (laughs) (laughs) Just block that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I block I block at least one bot a day, it feels like, lately. There's been a real influx. Um, I, I'm not an expert on um, cybersecurity and things like that, so I don't have, like, the telltale ways to tell someone's a bot, though, like, everything Amanda just mentioned is, is a good start for sure. I think that not arguing with the people on the Internet thing is, like, kind of a good bet, like... I think that, like, a good chunk of people who are on the internet trying to argue about politics are, like, not acting in good faith. And then I think people who are authentically passionate about the 2016 election and still want to talk about it, you know, that's certainly their prerogative. I think that, like, there's a lot of trauma from that election. Some of it is deeply felt. Some people are still holding on to it, you know, in maybe a backwards-looking, obsessive way. I think often... When it's coming up now from not trolls, there's something that hits people's funny bone in this election that echoes back to that in some type of way. But really, it's not productive. It's not a productive parallel, except to say that we're so vulnerable to Russian interference and and waving that flag. But these primaries in particular are so different that there really is no good faith or like productive reason to go back down that rabbit hole, I think.
3: Yeah, I feel like responding on Twitter to something that makes me angry is not necessarily a full rule out for me, but it is a moment to say to myself, what do I want out of this exchange? And if all I want is to vent, then I will totally do it. But if what I want is to change someone's mind, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just like back off and make myself think about it for at least a few more minutes.
0: Yeah. And this is a note to myself and to everyone listening. A lot of times when I start arguing with someone online, it's because other thing is bothering me and I don't want to address that other problem. So I'm like, let me just (laughs) argue with this person and take up my attention instead of thinking about what else I need to be doing with my time.
3: Okay. Silly closing question. You only get to pick one. Which candidate is the most feminist choice?
2: My heart is obviously with Warren. I don't even try to hide it. I mean, I think that she has a um, economic theory that, that is very putting women forward. And I think that's rooted in the fact that her research on bankruptcy law made her realize how much women are particularly affected by our unjust legal and financial systems in this country.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, for listeners who don't know, the Working Families Party has endorsed Elizabeth Warren in the presidential primary and i um, really excited to help get her um, to secure the nomination and then hopefully get elected. Uh, but I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think certainly many of the candidates have some feminist frame and feminist proposals. I think Senator Sanders' economic frame is, like, very feminist, and, like, I think often in the media, folks talk about — and not you, of course, um, on this show, but outside of this show, folks talk about feminism as, like, quote-unquote women's issues, but, of course, we know feminism is so much more than that in terms of economic justice, in terms of racial justice, how government works or should work. Um, certainly, you know, Senator Sanders has, has a feminist view uh, when it comes to his economic policies, and that, to me, is incredibly important. Elizabeth Warren does, too, in terms of social justice, in terms of economic policies, in terms of how government should work. And in addition, Elizabeth Warren is a woman. yeah, um, wait. Warren. And so I think to me that's really
2: compelling. yeah, so I'll just add, I like seeing women generally at in this because it changes things in a way that I think well, a lot of us didn't, didn't anticipate. Like Warren talking about enduring pregnancy discrimination, like that was huge. And nobody's ever talked about that on the campaign trail. I think in our chaotic times, that kind of went without mention, besides some of the controversies around it. But
3: it went with a lot of doubt. Like, I saw so many people doubting that that was a real thing for her. I saw so many people on Twitter uh, doubting her experience as a public school teacher at all. Like, people just really love to chip away. But anyway, continue.
1: That's totally right. And then I would just hearken back to what I said before as well about how she's specifically framing her campaign. That from the very first speech, her campaign kickoff speech, to her largest audience in New York City, to the one she just the speech she just gave at Atlanta, each and every time she is telling the story of women workers throughout history who have like done something incredibly courageous and by virtue of that made change not only for themselves but for this country and so her campaign is like very specifically a story of feminism uh, in a way that I've never seen before and it's you know not even I think secretary clinton really leaned into feminism in that way and then what's so wonderful at least for me about it is that it's not just a uh, idea of feminism as just women it's an idea of feminism as centering working women, centering an economic theory of you know the powerless versus the powerful and and the, that epic fight, and then also uplifting women of color and and workers and immigrant women. So anyway, I guess I'm pretty clear that I think that Elizabeth Warren is the more feminist. Not to say anyone is not feminist. I don't want people to freak out, but um, it, it is pretty exciting that she's running. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that was a
0: silly question at all. I think that was a that was a good question. I feel like
1: it's an oversimplified question.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, last year we we got several tweets being like, "Can I be a feminist if I vote for Bernie Sanders?" Like, <laughs> yes, yes, you can. It's fine. Like, so I think this is a this is a really good way to kind of sum up the the conversation and end it without taking up too much more of your time. But uh, Amanda, I know that your most recent book is called Troll Nation, and it's a good book, and people should read it. Is there anything else uh, you want people to know about where to find you or your work online?
2: Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter at Amanda.Marcott, and um, I am a political writer for Salon.com, so you can see me there writing nearly every day about the impeachment lately. Mm -hmm. And
0: by the time you hear this, different things will be going on, and Amanda will have more to say about it. Uh, Rebecca,
1: where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at... R-E-B-D-L-Y-N. And you can also um, find the Working Families Party online uh, at Working Families. You can text 738674. You could text the words WFP to that number. Again, you could text WFP to 738674 to join the Working Families Party and get updates. One quick thing I'd make a plug for is that we've started having um, national monthly membership meetings that happen via video chat. You can call in, but it's always way more fun to be on video. Uh, and the next one is tomorrow. Obviously for listeners, it won't be tomorrow, but it's the, I believe it's the last Sunday of every month. But this this month obviously is Thanksgiving. We're like, you get on for an hour and it's really wonderful. We have guest speakers. We have like a bit of a sermon from our national executive director. We have guest speakers. We go into breakout rooms and we talk with random other WFP folks far flung across the country and then we all come back together and we call it a night. So that's where you can find uh, more information about the Working Families Party. That's so cool. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So uh you can find me online at Miss
0: Cherry Pie P I Like the Number Pie. Just a quick note, this is our last episode of 2019. We will be back in twenty twenty. Please support us on Patreon. And just a note to our patrons out there, uh we're gonna be switching to monthly, but it's the same because we're going to be doing 12 more episodes next year. So by creation, by month, it's, it's going to be the same.
3: Karen? You can find me at uh, Karen. And thank you so much for listening. Have a great new year.
0: Yeah, and uh, remember to vote. Yeah. Take registration.
3: <laughs> You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. Tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth.
1: And you can find her music on SoundCloud.